Thank you for downloading this New Zealand Sports Radio show. We have a new way that you can support us. There is a link in the notes down below where you can make a one-off donation to New Zealand Sports Radio. Thank you for support and uh, enjoy the show. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Swinging from the Hip with our special guest tonight, Adrian Dale. But before we get to Adrian, welcome to Rohit and Taryn. How are you, boyos? Very good. Very good. Very good, very good. Back out of lockdown, so. And you're back in at school. Back to work. Exactly. Back to work. Back to work. No more. Where we've been. No, no more. No more Peppa Pig. No more Ben and Molly. Nothing wrong with Peppa life. Pig. But that's enough. That's enough of that. We'll get straight into it. Let's get into it with this week in history with Roy. Oh, this week I had to go far back in the archives to find a couple of doozies for this week. So. Uh, I'm going to start with 1874. The original entertainer, Gilbert Jessup, was born. Now, this guy was apparently a fiercer hitter than the likes of Sir Vivian Richards, Ian Botham, Adam Gilchrist and the like. Known as the Croucher for his unusual stance, he hit his first ball for Gloucestershire for a boundary, having come in on a hat-trick ball. He had 53 first-class centuries at a blistering average of 82.7 runs per hour. Who has that? He also smashed his way to his only test century, scoring 104 in 77 minutes out of a 139-run partnership. Now, that's entertainment, I reckon. Now, working our way up the years, 20th of May, 1943, Derek Murray, West Indies' finest wicketkeeper, was born, debuted in 63 at the ripe young age of 20 and played 62 tests. Derek was left out of the Trinidad Test in 1980, effectively ending his international career, and the locals boycotted that match and also vandalised the pitch. So moving along, 20th of May again, 1989 this time, saw the birth of another international wicketkeeper, keeping with the theme. Closer to our guest's home for today also, Sarah Taylor, who burst on the scene as a young 17-year-old for England in 2006. Now, Sarah was part of the England sides that won the World Cup and the World T20 in 2009, and she became the first woman to play men's grade cricket in Australia in October 2015. She won another World Cup at home in 2017 and then later retired, having struggled with anxiety. What an amazing feat. Now, one of the things she's also famous for that a lot of keepers around the world have come out with, she's taken the best catch ever for a keeper 
and that was taking a catch off a reverse sweep. Anticipation of the ball, amazing. Straight into the hands. Yep. Yep. Hey, well, I see. I see a common theme happening here. If we keep uh, Rohit doing this week in cricket, yeah, this is going to be birthdays, birthdays of wicket keepers. I don't know why. <laughs> hey, you got to dig deep for these things. Is our producer going to get a mention? A producer, yeah, yeah, a producer getting a mention is uh, absolutely. It was like, yes. and happy birthday to uh, Paul as well, who's uh, behind the scenes. You won't see him, but you'll see him typing up comments and bringing up comments on the screen. Uh, happy birthday to Paul and his daughter, who both had a birthday on Monday. And uh, it was, he's been basically, he's the man behind New Zealand Sport Radio. It started off um, as a uh, podcast series that he did around mental health that he then transformed into Driving Mall, which was around rugby focus. And more recently been... Um, divulging again, as as has been happening with a lot of things over COVID-19, and, and created New Zealand Sport Radio, which Swinging from the Hip is part of. So happy birthday to Paul Baines and his daughter, Ember. Happy birthday. Cool. Man. Alrighty. And um, so moving along, <laughs> happy birthday to me, ha- moving <laughs> right along and into this week in news, uh, the news this week with Taryn. So what have we got in the news yeah. this week, Taryn? Well, we've got we've got countries wanting to prepare, get back into cricket. Sri Lanka is looking at getting back in on the first. We don't know what if that's going to happen. Maybe because Mickey Arthur stuck, watch has chosen to stay back in Sri Lanka and stay with the team as opposed to going back home to Perth. So maybe there's an opportunity for them to get started. They do have quite a big calendar at hand. Disinfecting cricket balls out of Australia from sandpaper to sticky tape. Now they're looking at moving into disinfecting balls in order to get cricket going. Darwin Cricket is scheduled to start T20 and one-day club cricket in Darwin in Australia to start in June. On a major cricketing front, though, Ravi Shastri, the Indian cricket coach, believes India is likely to prioritise bilateral cricket series over global events. And IPL is now back on the radar with a mooted date of 25th of September, start to 1st of November. That is subject to the Indian government um, allowing overseas players as well as allowing sport to continue with UAE has been put up as a backup option. Former Indian uh, IPL CEO has stated that the IPL is actually worth 70% more in revenue than any global tournament, which is probably why the Indians aren't too fussed about the World T20 and want to do that. Apparently, it's worth $162 million New Zealand dollars just for this one year. On a domestic front, Christchurch City Council has confirmed it's going to loan $1 million to Hagley Oval so they can get completely lit up and have night games, which is awesome considering that Hagley Oval is playing quite a big role at the Women's World Cup next year if it goes ahead. Staying with Canterbury Cricket, they're actually out on the market looking for head coaches with the Brendan Donkers position up for grabs. So they've gone to the market. Who would you say is probably an outside chance? Dion Abraham, who's working with the... I don't, I'm not sure if you guys know. He played for Zimbabwe years ago. No. Um, he's no. in Canterbury. He might be an outside bet. I think he's an assistant coach there. Andrew Ellis is fully retired. He is Mr. Red and Black, so he's an outside bet. But my call is Peter Fulton. Probably step down from batting coach and go to a head coaching role. That's my pick. And obviously, New Zealand cricket 
contracts were released. The big winner was Jameson after his performances against India. Ajas Patel for all the work he's been doing as the second spinner. Um, and South African, no, I wouldn't say rookie, um, South African cricketer who's now maybe New Zealand. Yeah, Devin Conway, uncapped, uncapped is the word you're after. Who's been excluded? Todd Astle, after his surprise retirement from Test cricket, having bowled quite well in Sydney. Um, Colin Munro, three T20 international hundreds. I'm pretty sure a lot of teams would find room for him, but not this year. And Jeet Raval, which still harsh, but yeah, look, understandable. And I'm sure he'll make a comeback. Yeah, so that's the news internationally and locally. Thanks for that, Taryn. And a couple of things to unpack there. Um, obviously, with the IPL, um, you mentioned the fact that they're looking to get away underway in September. But it really does come down to what the Indian government says, doesn't it? And then they've got the backup plan of going UAE to run the competition. Uh, it's, oh, I think, yeah, it will probably be behind closed doors. It is going to be um, TV content that they'd be looking yep. for and their commercial obligations that they need to fulfil. And that basically I, does... Sorry, you carry on. No, no, you go, you go. I was going to say, and that definitely then basically doesn't put a nail in the coffin, but definitely means the postponement of the T20 World Cup. Yeah, no, because <clears throat> that is, uh, what, once every two years? But this mm-hmm. has to be played every year, right? So IPL has to be played this year, and you can't... You've got to factor in the fact that it's monsoon season in India, so you won't get any cricket, even if there was no COVID. Post-May, it's monsoon, so you're not going to get any cricket till September at least, so their hands are tied. Mm-hmm. And that's their window, which is why India play their cricket season in their winter. Yep. So they and will force that and will make that happen, yeah. Yeah, and, and I mean, it'll, it'll be, I'm, I'm sure Australia will get a nice little kickback with the um, tour to, tour India tour <laughs> of Australia to be confirmed with five tests in Adelaide. Well, possibly, but I think New Zealand's going to be a big winner if the IPL goes ahead in October followed by the World T20 then getting pushed back to February, which will mean that England, Australia, New Zealand, Trans-Tasman bubble tri-series could possibly happen in the lead to their tour to Australia. So that New Zealand can come out a winner on this. But, we'll keep our eyes on that. It's, it is exciting yeah. if that, if that uh, transpires. Yeah, um, yes, it's great for India, but for the smaller nations, I think it's a big problem because they're all yep. reliant on global funding, ICC funding through global events. And... I'm sure we can throw this out to AD. He'd know he's been in cricket administration long enough that he'd be able to give us how the nitty gritty works. That's it. We'll keep that keep that in mind because otherwise we'll forget. So we will chuck that at Adrian Dale, our guest. That will be coming up. Also, exciting news in that I think for New Zealand cricket again is to get another stadium that's got lights. Um, and and Hagley Oval is a lovely picturesque ground, and so to, for it to have lights, obviously. To get it for the um, women's um, ODI World Championship, um, but it'll be there for all, every, all sorts of night night test matches again, possibly at Hagley. So it's a mm. great development, isn't it? Yep, absolutely. What's and it like finally, to play in the evenings there? Yeah, what's, what's it that? like, Karen? Have you played in the evenings in Christchurch? Um, we tried to when they tried to put these temporary lighting, like scissor lift with lighting and all sorts of random things. It was a terrible day weather-wise, and it had to be tanned. So we got a couple of times to train under it, just to test the lights out. 
yeah. which great concept, good idea, but yeah, the lights went flashed in. What about so you? What, yeah, that's what I was thinking. Um, I couldn't tell you. I couldn't okay. tell you. I never no, that's that wonderful. Thing. Yeah. And finally, I, mean, I think just one of the things, um, obviously New Zealand focused there is with those NZC contracts, three really exciting players in terms of Kyle Jamison, AJS Patel, and obviously Devin Conway. Um, you know, we're, we're three players that we've seen, they're exciting players. And so there's a, there's a real sort of desire to see those guys out there in a black shirt for the New Zealand cricket team. Mm, yeah, look, I don't think a lot of people would have seen Devin Conway unless you're cricket tragic, domestic cricket <laughs> tragic. They wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't have seen him. Yep. Uh, I definitely haven't seen him. Like I've played against him a handful of times, but I, yeah, I couldn't tell you much about him. Jameson, his record and his start of his career speaks for itself. Same with Ajax Patel, thoroughly deserved. I just question mark over the need to contract Conway. You could have shown some loyalty towards Monroe. For his recent success, and still, you could have still picked Conway. He'd yep. still get a the contract, so it's not as if he's running off anywhere. He would have got it, and he could have earned it, just the way my right. rose had to. I had an international window. Yeah, I mean, he hasn't proven himself at international, right? So yeah. to jump, cue the jump, and get a contract, that's a pretty big feat. It's a bit yeah. rough on Colin Munro, though. And yeah, as it you probably, say, yeah. Shows, probably shows how much faith they have in him. And how many? It must be a long-term investment. It's got to be. Yeah. yeah. Well, he's still I, got to I, prove I, himself. Gutted for Monroe, absolutely gutted for Munro. But there'll be enough world cricket leagues when they're up and running that will love, that will happily have him as their marquee player. Oh, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. He's going to he's going to pick up plenty of. Um, he's going to pick up plenty of T20 contracts. Check out his record yep. in the Caribbean and the TPL. Yep. It's phenomenal. Yep. They love him over there. And and mm. I just like just to shout out to AJ as a local boy, um, lives not too far away from here too. So uh, yay, it's great to I see people from your hood. Oh well, Blockhouse Bay. We're stretching it a bit, Blockhouse yeah. Bay. Yeah, <laughs> but apparently out of Eden Roskill originally. It's good <laughs> to see him get a contract. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah. Well, Aaron was telling me on the weekend. He said they originally oh, we are we, before he shifted to suburbs. Right. Hey, aren't they all from Eden Roskill? <laughs> hey guys look um we will we'll, that's enough from us let's get in carry on with the show and we'll get um this week's star guest star on which is adrian dale now adrian is uh raised in wales and is a right-hand batsman and writer a right arm medium pace bowler who scored over 12,500 first class runs and took 200 first class wickets. He played exclusively for Glamorgan between 1989 and 2004. And just in the pre show chat, um, I think Taryn mentioned he, he retired at the rather early age of 35, did you say? Yeah, 35. Yeah, 35. He was part of a 1997 county championship winning team with Glamorgan. And in 1993, something we'll get into a bit more when we get Adrian on is that he was in this great partnership with the great Sir Vivian Richards. It was part of a record two, 425-run partnership against Middlesex. He's also had first-class games when he was selected to tour South Africa with England A in 1992. And in 2005, he immigrated to New Zealand, where he started his sports management career, working at the Cornwall Cricket Club, Squash Auckland, Auckland Cricket, and New Zealand Cricket as GM of uh, Community Cricket. In February, That was in February 2020. 
He was also named uh, in the New Zealand squad for the over 50s Cricket World Cup in South Africa. So after representing England A at an earlier uh, time in his career, he, he made the right decision in joining the New Zealand over 50s Cricket World Cup in South Africa. Unfortunately, after getting named and making it all the way over there, the tournament had to be cancelled uh, during the third round of matches due to the coronavirus. So that's a little bit of information about our guest tonight. That's Adrian Dale, and welcome, Adrian, to the show. Great to have you on. Hi, guys. Yeah, no, pleasure. Been fun listening to you. That's great. Yes. <laughs> well, enough listening to us. We'll start listening to you now. So um, getting into the show, and um, look, as we'll sort of mention, there's um, some of your career statistics or bio there. I, I think we'll, we'll, we might dig into one of those um, facts, factoids that we had. Was that was your partnership with Vivian Richards in 1993, 425 a record partnership at the time. I'm not sure if it still stands. You might be able to, to tell us whether it does or not against Middlesex. Tell us a bit about a little bit about that innings or against Middlesex. I promise I won't take you through ball by ball. Summary. It's still um it's still a Glamorgan highest partnership record. I think it's still in the top ten record of fifth wicket partnerships in wisdom. Um, and it was just bloody great. Um, you know, Viv, um, larger than life character, obviously had been past his sort of international career at that stage. He was just playing first class cricket. Everybody sort of remembers him from being at Somerset, uh, sort of playing with sort of Joel Garner, Martin Crow for a time there as well. Mm -hmm. And then he sort of decided to sort of um, to play for Glamorgan, I think because it was like it had a very strong Welsh identity, Glamorgan. And I thought that Viv. It was he was always a bit anti-establishment, right? So I think he he didn't mind playing for a Welsh team as opposed to an English captain, mm, and he oh was yeah. just this remarkable influence on our um, team. Look, he wasn't always um, he wasn't always a nice man, right? He wasn't one of those sort of wants to be your best mate type characters. He was um, tough as nails, and when he came in the dressing room, we just looked at him, and if he was up, everybody was up. If he was down, everyone had to really watch what they said and what they did, you know, because he was, you know, he was just, you could get in one of those moods, but he was real driven. Um, and on that particular, I mean, that particular, we lost that bloody game, by the way. We, oh, oh, we lost that game. Yeah. We played against a pretty strong Middlesex side. They had um, four um, international test bowlers. They had um, Tufnell and Embry with the two spinners. Yeah. Um, Fraser, many of you sort of listeners might remember and there's a guy Angus called Fraser. Uh, Angus yeah. Fraser yeah he was a super bowler and a guy called um, uh, Neil Williams who played a little bit for England and one of my favourite stories in that sort of um, innings was it was a it was surprisingly a hot day in Cardiff in Wales um, we'd sort of batted for quite a while and Viv was starting to get a little bit hacked off about sort of me trying to scamper seeing the wickets and him just really wanting to hit boundaries and he was just far too cool really to just be scamping <laughs> singles. So he um, he pulled me up to the middle of the wicket and he sort of really close. He goes, now look here, youngster, he said. Huh? He said, he said, I ain't running um he said, I ain't running no threes. <laughs> he said, we'll take easy tools to the boundaries. He said, and uh Oh, no, as he said, we're running no threes, maybe some easy twos to the boundaries, the odd singles, but God willing, we'll be dealing in boundaries. That's that's <laughs> what he said to him. <laughs> so he just, yeah, he just had that matter about him. He was so cool. Eddie, how many runs did he cost you in those twos and threes and singles? 
Oh, Let's geez. be honest. How many did it cost you? Oh, but not that many, probably. But um, you know, it, it was just great. You just, uh, yeah. There was this one time I remember. You know, in cricket, sometimes as bats, we've all that feeling when you've just hit the shot and it's pinged off the middle of the bat, fast outfield has hit the gap, and you know it's four. Yeah. So, but I've done it, and because I'm young and I'm enthusiastic, I've run down the um. I've run down the sort of track, and Viv hasn't moved from his crease. He's still leaning on his bat handle. And he just says, <laughs> run, man, you sporty shot. That's what he says. <laughs> <to me. laughs> you gotta love it, eh? That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> That's the so you, so you go, I'm just coming down to shake your hand. <laughs> so, so, how many years did you spend, AD, with you guys? Two. He had two seasons, and one of them was a bit cut short from injury as well. But the first year he came, we won a um, sort of one-day title. He really yeah. inspired the team. So um, we had this strong Welsh identity, a really good core of young Welsh players. Many of you, you know, quite a few went on to play a little bit for England, like Steve Watkin, Robert Croft, Steve James, yeah. um, those sorts of players. Not Matt Hugh Morris, guys that played a little bit for England, but they were really good county players. And he was the spark that just made us sort of believe in ourselves because we were the whipping boys before that. Glamorgan was the rubbish county. Everybody sort of you know, whipping boys. Uh, was yeah. That, was that more around belief? Because like Glamorgan, you always, okay, from the little, so when I was quite young, still living in India, there was a like an, a proper smorgasbord of county cricket live through the early 90s on television. And you pretty much got all sorts of cricket. And we used to watch it. And you always felt the Morgan cricketers were like nuggety cricketers, you know, like like they were ready to scrap kind of cricketers. Is that how you describe the Morgan cricket, or were they quite soft and like Auckland like cricket sometimes? Oh, hi, uh, no. to, to be honest, I, I think we did go through years where we were soft, to be honest. Yeah. And um, yeah, it took us um, a wee while to sort of understand, you know, the competitive environment. And, you know, we probably just lagged behind a little bit on professionalism as well. You know, when I first turned up in Glamorgan, played in 1989, you know, you finish a game yeah. of cricket and then it was hands up, lads, who wants a lager, hands up, who wants a bitter, you know, and it was that sort of environment. Yes, that's the way it was. Um, yeah. You know, when I played candy cricket in 1989, I played in Headingley in Yorkshire and at lunchtime during a first-class game, you went to the table and everyone had a beer on the table in 1989. No one drunk it, but it was there for you to drink if you want. I mean, it's ridiculous, right? So it just it was just that sort of getting into the sort of whole professional side. So it was people like Viv, Wackal Eunice when he came to us in '97, um, along with coaches like Duncan Fletcher at the yeah. time. They really sort of lifted the standards. Okay. And we had a we had a period there where um, yeah, we were a very competitive team. So what's Duncan Fletcher coaching Lamorgan for a period of time? Yeah, so when we won the county championship, he was the coach. So that yeah. elevated him to the English ranks. Yeah, he went line. from there to he went from there to England, and I did see one of the sort of um, live comments come up earlier asking about you know why Wales, you know, doesn't play as a sort of international sort of team like mm. Uh, mm. like sort of Scotland and Ireland do, and uh, it's because I guess Wales way some time ago they basically decided to join that professional setup. So if Wales were to go alone now as an international team, they'd have to, I mean, Glamorgan as a county wouldn't exist anymore. There would be no professional funding. You'd lose all that revenue. And potentially it could be the, to the detriment of Welsh cricket, not to the benefit. Mm -hmm. I mean, and they, that's just what the decision has been made to do. But I remember because Duncan Fletcher left Glamorgan to play to coach England, he's got together with our CEO at Glamorgan. And he said, look, 
I want my team to have a sort of a practice match before a one-day series that was coming up. I can't remember who it was against. Can we arrange a, a Wales versus England game um, to warm the guys up? He said, we'll play at Glamorgan. Glamorgan can make some good coin out of it, so it'd be great for Glamorgan. And yeah, so yeah. did play an international, but England and the England and Wales cricket ball were quite worried we weren't going to be strong enough competition. So our overseas player in that season was Jack Callis. Yeah, and so oh. they said, um, oh, Callis, okay. you, yeah, you, you, you play for him as well. So there's a there's a quiz question for your quiz, Ashwin, coming up. What's the two countries that um, Jack Callis has played for? South Africa and Wales. Not many people. Would <laughs> um, mm. And we, um, yeah, we beat them, and we beat them um, in a game. Right. So. That was, um, that was one of my most favourite sort of cricketing memories coming in. And was that quite embarrassing for England? Or did they just kind of shrug it, shrug it off as a little... Oh, oh, they they shrugged it off, but at the time they were they were pretty embarrassed, yeah. And they had all the, yeah. all the players there, the Flintoffs and the Andersons and the people like that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. When they uh, dropped did you, the Wales, did you play? Sorry? Did you play that game? Yeah, I played that game, yeah. How'd you get on? Oh, jeez. Um, I think I bowled pretty well. I, I'm not even sure I got in. Oh, so I, easy. Yeah. One I like eight wickets or something. Oh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Jack Keller scored the runs in. Yeah, he got a few, but I think we just, yeah, I think we just kept them, bowled them out quite cheap. Eddie, who's, who's the best pro you've played with? International pro? Like, you know, the overseas players you've had? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, probably the ones we've been mentioning here would be hard to, I mean, Viv Richards, just amazing. Um, Callis, my, my very first pro when I first turned up was Ravi Shastri. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, the Indian coach. So, and he was great for a young player like myself because he was really keen to sort of um, stop this sort of senior players with senior players, junior players with junior players. He wanted right. to integrate this whole team together. And he always made an effort like to do throwdowns with you and sort of mix and mingle and that sort of stuff. So he was great in that sort of way. But, and Callis, I mean, what a, what a player. But, my personal favourite um, was um, Waka Yunus. He's just an okay. uh, amazing guy. Um, he just ran in for us all season when we won the championship, whether it was from April through to September, first session, last session, whether it was bloody cold or hot. You know, he just, just ran in for us all season. And he was a difference. He was just a remarkable bowler. Just loved him. I've never seen so many uh, a bowler gets so many wickets with full tosses. When he got that reverse swing going, you might be yeah. fielding cut thinking, oh, that's a stinking delivery. You know, looks shin high, full toss. And the batter yeah. just miss it. And you talk to the keepers and slips, and they said, yeah, but it just swung, swung two foot in the air, you know? So, oh, that was at 91, 93 around that time. No, so, sorry. I, I was remembering my date. So, Wacker was 97. So, um, yeah, Callis must have been sort of 96. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, nice. So Kasparovic was a great pro as well. So he played for us as well, the Australian. So he oh, yeah. was a really good, what you call, just, he didn't quite have that X factor, but he was just a really great pro. He was a fantastic guy as well. Well, I suppose that's a good time to sort of get into um, one of our topics for tonight or uh, unpackage it. It's got multiple threads in it. Is this, We're going to sort of talk about the domestic setup in the UK. So we'll get you to sort of go into how things work because – Obviously, we've got the county championship. We've got the hundred, which is the UK version of um, of first class sort of um, fifty over cricket, and then we've got the Vitality Blast, which is the uh, UK version of T Twenty competition. So, 
how does all this work together? Who plays for who? I mean, like, I just, I suppose we'll throw out there in terms of Australia with their big bash, where players will for the their big bash tournament go from Brisbane through down to Melbourne to play, sort of thing. So, how does it work in the UK, and and how does the club structure underneath fit into it all? It's a lot to unpackage. <laughs> can, you, can you tell me? <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's they are getting, I think, to where they want to get to, but at the moment it's a bit of it's a bit of a train smash, to be honest. So they it's really evolved the county game. I think some of the big things that's happened in history from the time they started doing central contracts, I think it was around the year two thousand. I think that was a massive sort of step up for the international game there. And then they obviously um, then sort of went two divisions in the county championship, and I think that was a much better idea than trying to get rid of counties because it, it just, um, you know, it's all, almost became like a Premier League and a sort of, you know, uh, what, the division below? like the Below it, yeah, Division so, 1. Yeah, so, so that's the way they, they sort of work it. And obviously now they obviously need that sort of T20-type county championship. But, you know, there's too many counties, right? To, to structure a whole T20 tournament, it's tough. It's tough to do it. So they've decided they want to form this, um, I think it's 10-team, 100-ball competition. Might even be eight teams, not 100% yeah. sure. City-based, um, yeah. 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 And, and I, I think, personally, that that eventually will sort of be the dominant tournament and they'll sort of phase out count, uh, county cricket, T20, and that will just focus on the sort of four-day stuff and the 50-over stuff. That's a, the 100 bash because I mean, counties are getting so, or the not counties, these franchises are getting like 1.3 million pounds per county to sort of run these teams. They're bringing in the big stars. I mean, the Welsh Fire or something, whatever they're called. There, we're gonna have Steve Smith playing from this year and other sort of big names. Mm. So, it's I think they, they can't have all these going on at once, they need to sort of start to push some away. Yeah, how will um, so that's city based, right. Yeah. So let's let's take Glamorgan per se. You've got uh, Welsh Fire. What yeah. counties are now going to fall under or create the Welsh Fire? Is it no, just not, Wales? Is it like Glamorgan that. or would it be a couple others? Uh, it's a franchise system, so they can pick. So people like um, so the Welsh Fire was going to be like uh, like Bearstow was going to play from Johnny Bearstow. I mean, yeah, it's so north, it's north. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, look, and I, and I saw that um, thing pop up there about the standard, you know, and it's, um, I think personally, I think that the standard of domestic cricket in New Zealand is totally underrated. That's, and I've thought that. I really do believe that it's, um, that certainly at the moment, there's a lot of strength in your domestic game in New Zealand. And I think that's reflected, Taryn, in that sort of uh, New Zealand squad you mentioned earlier. Look at the players who couldn't get into that contracted mm. setup who I mean, are some very good players right so um I, I personally think there's um there's a lot of depth in new zealand cricket and there's some really really good sort of uh domestic players out there i mean county cricket i think is becoming a little a little bit um division one and division two so those division one teams up there when you've got all your england players and stuff clearly they're very strong when they're not there you know i, I would say that's the new zealand provincial is more like a division one team that's the way i see it yeah um, yeah. Where you know the division two, but there's there's things below that. But certainly the club cricket in New Zealand, certainly in Auckland, where I most experience, is much stronger. 
than the club cricket I ever sort of saw or played in in the UK. So uh, I, yeah, I temper that by saying my experiences of club cricket were only around the region I brought up in, but um, it's chalk and cheese. I mean, you you play club cricket here in Auckland. I mean, and it's taken like very seriously. You train properly twice a week. You properly coach. You prepare. Um, but it's you know, there's a big focus on it, and um, there's a big expectation around it. It's got a good profile. Um, and they really had a go at trying to lift that in England by creating these sort of super leagues to, to act as feeding grounds to sort of professional cricket. But to be honest, it might have worked in small pockets here and there, but mostly I don't think it's worked at all because club cricketers in the UK just want to play club cricket. They don't want to travel too far. They just want to have play a bit of cricket, you know, compete hard, of course, but as much about the social as anything. But here, I think it, um, certainly in Auckland, that's what I can speak most about. It's, it's absolutely seen as a stepping stone onto sort of um, onto the your, your professional ladder. So chalk and cheese the way they approach it. So if if club cricket is not the pathway, not necessarily the pathway as it is here, how do counties go about identifying talent and then picking them? Well, they just look at young players that sort of are playing club cricket. And that what they do is they take them out of club. Well, they don't take them out. They allow them to play club cricket, but then they sort of put them into um, much more better established second 11 competitions. So yeah. that's what we don't have in New Zealand. We don't have like an Auckland seconds that goes and plays against, you know, Canterbury seconds that plays against Northern District seconds. But in yeah. UK, there's a massive sort of established structure around that. And that's yeah. the breeding ground for professional cricket. Well, okay. Not, not club cricket. And how many sort of club to get into the seconds? Yeah. How, how many sort of um, like so if you look take a Glamorgan, and how many is, is it? Uh, I'm sorry if I'm you've mentioned this already, but it's just like you say if I think of Glamorgan as in Auckland, and then you've got the clubs underneath. How many clubs would there be in a Glamorgan area that would feed into into them? Oh, loads. So the um, okay. I mean Glamorgan is the whole pretty much of Wales. So right. Um, yeah, absolutely loads of clubs would feed into them. But you've got to remember, a load of those clubs are just village clubs. You know, they're yep. not really going to produce mm. professional cricketers. But in terms of, like, proper established cricket clubs, there might be uh, maybe, yeah, probably similar to Auckland, maybe 16 clubs that, that are, like, you would call proper clubs like that scattered all throughout the country. And they sort of get some sort of funding or um, development support um, from Glamorgan, or or how no. does that sort of stri- nothing there? It's no. basically so you run yourself. Yeah. So in Auckland, where the club management system is um, funded by Auckland Cricket, um, that doesn't happen the same in the UK. So it's much, much more of a volunteer based club system. Um, it's still volunteer based in New Zealand, but there is a professional sort of management element to it, which you don't get in the UK. There's sort of there's definitely a structure there that we we follow, isn't there? Yeah, mm. absolutely. Yeah, and I think that the go on, man. No, oh, sorry, um, Eddie. What I was going to ask was when you when you said it's a volunteer system, so how how badly will these clubs be affected? Because I've done nine seasons there, and I honestly, if you've not played club cricket in the UK, you've not played cricket. It's the best thing ever, right? Like the way it's done. Club cricket in the UK yeah. is amazing, right? How badly will they now be affected through what's happening out in the world at the moment? Yeah, I mean, it's hugely affected. I mean, they've got all these fixed costs, right, that um, ain't going anywhere. 
and they've got no cricket, they've got no bar, they've got no sort of junior tournaments, you know, no women's cricket, no sort of men's comp. So it's, um, I think they've said there's going to be no cricket before 1st of July. So I think that's pretty yeah. much been said already. Yeah. Um, there's there's some hope there might be some international cricket that will be played uh, before the end of this season because yeah. I think the West Indies are due to go there, Pakistan are due, due to go to UK and I think maybe the Aussies as well for the T20. And I think what's going to happen there is they're going to try and sort of um, almost play them in quarantine-type um, bubbles. So yeah. get these teams in, the England team, let's say the West Indies team, and they've got quite a few grounds in the UK, like Southampton and Nottingham and yeah. some others that have actually got hotels attached to the ground. Yeah. So what they do is they actually yeah. put the players and the support staff and even potentially some of the people working in the test match into these hotels, keep them all sort of isolated in a bubble. Then they'll play the, the game, no crowd, just for the purposes of sort of TV to get something up, up and running. And I think that's the sort of plan. I, I do believe there's an appetite. From what I've heard in the UK, there's a big appetite to do that. And that's certainly something that may happen. So with your administrator's hat on and you want to create some revenue and stuff, right? Could you potentially then um, sell a package, let's say, um, to an Indian family or whatever that has the money? Because uh, your borders are possibly going to open up, I hear, right? possibly under 14-day quarantine, and then quarantine them into that hotel, you could have a layer where it's guests or spectators and you've got a corporate box. Maybe. You, you, you've got a better mind for that sort of stuff than me, Taryn, I'd say. You're in the bubble, you're in the bubble, right? So, yeah, if they can sell a, if they can sell a sort of spot in the bubble, I mean, God, mm. there'd be some crazy cricket yeah. in that. I would just love to spend two weeks with international teams. Oh, it's right. oh, man. Think about it. I didn't even think of that. Imagine yeah. having breakfast with Chris Gale possibly sitting in there. Well, he probably doesn't have breakfast, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Chris yeah. Gale doesn't eat. <laughs> yeah. He's home. Yeah, he's at that time. <laughs> Look, um, yeah. just, just, just coming back to one of the questions that popped up uh, through the chat rooms is the fact is that so – in terms of obviously in Auckland or throughout New Zealand, in fact, um, first eleven cricket within the schools is a very strong competition, very big competition. How is it in the UK? What what's the structure there? Is it quite a um, big part of the UK cricket scene? Um, so it's it's different. So um, in New Zealand, um, not every school plays cricket, right? But a lot of schools play cricket, right? Um, and they could be um, private schools like your St. Kent's and King's or they could be your um, sort of public schools, right? In the UK, they call them different things. The public schools are the, you know, that's where you've got to pay for. So yep. it's different yep. terminology, right? But in the UK, basically cricket is only paid in those public schools. So if right. you've got a comprehensive school, um, which are most schools, they don't play cricket. So I personally never played a game of cricket for my school. In fact, I actually played one because they arranged it for me because they heard I was pretty good. But otherwise, <laughs> it was literally one game of cricket. But, you know, I didn't actually play cricket properly for my school because it wasn't. And so I just played, played in my club. So I was playing club cricket against adults when I was 13, 14, 15, which I don't think did me any harm, to be honest. I think it actually um, did me a lot of good. But, um, but I still do think that school cricket in New Zealand is important. So I'm not saying... Because what a great experience for kids, you know, as long as it's well run, good pitches, good coaches, you know, good focus on it. 
I just think that's a, an amazing thing. But they've just got to be smart enough that if school is not offering a player what he actually needs, if he's actually outgrown school cricket, they've just mm. got to be smart enough to let them go and play in other comps with, which can properly sort of elevate their talents. So how would Darren? you quantify um, outgrowing um, – how would you quantify outgrowing school cricket? Sorry, outgoing how would you like out like you know how you said if they outgrow school cricket yeah. right then you should allow them to go premier cricket so how do you know that they outgrown it? like what is the right opportunity for let's say we've got a good premier school cricketer what is a good pathway would you say he's got to be playing premier cricket and getting good opportunities to say yep you're good enough to go you've got to go or is reserve cricket good enough for him to leave premier school cricket or is third grade good enough for him to go What's the right appropriate? It's not good enough. Um, reserve cricket, you know, borderline. If you're a really good schoolboy cricketer, you'd be wanting to sort of, you know, you'd be if you were leaving school cricket, you'd be wanting to play in Premier cricket. I would say, yeah, that, that's what. And I in do. your chosen position, eh? you're not there to make up numbers. You're there to dominate. Well, you know, you got to be good enough. You know, it's not not yeah. free ride in cricket. It's a competitive environment, but um, you know. It's it's worth the um, the opportunity, but you know if you've got great, you know you've got Deepak Patel and Mark Gretbach and Tony yeah. Sale, really good cricket guys like this coaching some of the top schools. They they'll know. Yeah, they'll know. They'll know when a player is sort of needs. I don't think any of them would ever leave a kid. <laughs> let them go. I don't think any of them would let them go to club <laughs> cricket. Would it, well, would it, I think they would. I know what you mean, but I actually when it yeah. comes to it. Would the school yeah. cricket be just as strong uh, competition-wise as Premier cricket? Is that what you're saying? No, no, it's or not. It's, uh, I, I, I don't think that the so, top schools could play Premier cricket and compete no. well. I think um, I think they'd be more reserve grade standard. That's, that's, that's pretty that, big standard. That's my feel because yeah. I've seen on schoolboy cricket the last few years, and I've um, played grade cricket myself. And uh, so it's allowed me really to sort of understand the comparison. So right. I would say it's I would I would say it's about reserve cricket. Schoolboy intensity is good though, eh? Like because they're all there for the same reason. The intensity is higher than a reserve grade cricket. Wow. Yeah, it's brilliant. I mean, it's great. I mean, it's the whole it's the whole wraparound that goes around school cricket and school sport in general in New Zealand. You know, it's the you get your colours, you get your blazer. It's the whole. You're so proud, you know, to, to represent your school at first 11. And then, you know, it's, yeah. it's just great. It means something to them. It's so important. They cross stage. They, they, they're, they're sort of looked upon in high regard by their sort of peers at school. It's, I'm gonna it's, butt it's in. great to their development. Yeah. I'm going to butt in there. And actually, I'm going to throw something back to Taryn because you work at Mount Roscoe Grammar School, which is obviously not a um, traditional cricket school in any sense sort of thing. How, how do you find sort of cricket development uh, for a first 11 at a school that isn't known to produce a strong cricket team? Um, oh, ours is pretty easy because the bar, the expectations aren't high and we are in the hotbed of a cricketing community. Yes. So it's, there is a conveyor belt of cricketers, like it or not, coming through. It's just a case of providing them like meaningful opportunities to compete. And they're ultra competitive and they're very traditional. They don't like this the new age formats they don't want to play pink balls they want to play what they see on television they want to see proper cricket and they believe that's and them and the kids and their parents think that's the way forward you know 
but they do they do do that at school cricket time, don't they? They do play. Yeah, yeah, that's and they love it. Yeah, yeah. It's only that other stuff at junior level. Yeah. So how do you think how do you think that development happened at say Mount Ross School in terms of like as you say hotbed for um uh the the ethnic population around that school the cricket is their game, and and w w are you seeing the the quality or the caliber of the first eleven at Mount Ross School grammar increasing or getting to a state where they could challenge in Auckland Grammar School? Uh, so I started there in 2017. I'll take no credit for it because my role is not to coach at all. Mm. We had eight players rocking up in 2017. Um, they had eight boys playing cricket. That's it. Yep. And you fast fast forward to now, our boys won the 180-20 competition last year when we were in the 1B grade. And the season just finished. They had a 14-game game winning streak and got promoted to the 1A, which is the second tier. It's basically Division 1 of school cricket. So they're not as bad, and they probably could mix it with the top four of that grade. And it's, again, it's just their own passion. They are in the nets all the time. If you go to Kite Park, the nets are always packed. Yep. Eden Rockwell has, like, basically it's a conveyor belt for Eden Rockwell, really. It's a sleeping yep. giant. It is. Yep. It is. Absolutely. It's just enhancing, harnessing that potential that's in the area to, to, yep. to develop, the, uh, develop, deliver. I'll get it out eventually. Deliver the goods. And look, it's, and it's a good opportunity here. Oh, sorry. You finish off. If you no, I was going to say, the longer the longer Eden Ross School stays a sleeping giant, the stronger Cornwall and suburbs will become. Because the parents will see they want structure, they want organised, you know, clear pathways, good communication. And mm. that's you, why else is Cornwall as big and why are suburbs as big? Because of, you know, the sleeping giant is still sleeping, right? Sleeping. Everybody in Hillsborough, Mags, Mount Roscoe area, they kind of wait, wait, wait. Oh, look, it's, let me go to suburbs and try my luck. Like you mentioned, Ajaz Patel started at in Roscoe, apparently. He's there. Yep. You know, Annika yep. Parrott, all of the guys that go to Mags, then move on to Cornwall for greater pathways. Opportunity, the uh, the the opportunity and the the, the yeah. yeah that's there. Look, that's, that's, we'll take that opportunity because we'll, um, we'll move into Adrian's more sort of recent um, involvement in the cricket sport here in New Zealand itself. And Adrian, I'll get you to explain what your involvement has been around, and it's been around junior cricket. So, what has been going on in that space? Yeah, look, it's been um, you know a hot topic within cricket the last few years that there's been a an introduction into junior cricket and that's sort of and i'll define that by being pre-high school cricket yep. yeah whereby um that the format of those kids cricket is designed as to to give them sort of maximum opportunity to engage in the game have fun develop their skills right and mm -hmm. not as it used to be before was taking those kids and popping them into like parents said, what they see on TV, 11 people, um, you know, when you're out, you're out, playing off full-length pitches. Um, and it just, I coached it myself. You know, you can tell from this chat tonight, I'm not a university professor. I haven't done a degree in sport. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a cricket person through and through. And I've seen it with my own eyes, with my own kids and these other kids coming through, that it was just putting so many people off the game is putting the parents off the game you could literally spend you know before this age and stage you could literally go and spend four or five hours around a junior cricket field on a saturday for your kid to bowl one or two overs and get out the second or third ball or something 
You know, that's not going to want that. Kids aren't going to come back. You know, there's got to be a penalty for like getting out and something like that. But it's, I just have not got to believe it needs to be that harsh when they're that young. They're not going to learn the game sitting on the side. You know, they just got to get in there. Um, if you play with less numbers, there's more gaps, there's more running, more fielding, it's more dynamic. You know, um, the, the pitches are shorter, so the trajectory of the ball is more like it is in real cricket, where before, you know, kids chucking up big grenades because <laughs> the pitch is too long for the body size that they are. You know, everything about it just seems so so wrong. So um, this is it's a real evidence-based approach. So there was a whole lot of work done in Australia about it. And uh, we basically picked that up and we were able to actually to implement it in New Zealand quicker than Australia could do it in their own country, um, I guess, because we can do that sort of stuff. We're small enough. And I personally think it's, it's just been fantastic revelation for the game. But there's plenty out there who don't think that. Did you get a lot of pushback? Oh, yeah. By normally from parents whose kids were the better players because their kids were going to bat at the top of the order week in week out right they were the ones that we could have the potential to bat for long periods of time that it was normally the parents of the good batters that um so, right. is there a is there an opportunity because it's those parents of the better cricketers at that age right at that what on that given day or in that era or can there's nothing wrong in them wanting more for their own kids either no it's not it's the balance right? I, yeah, at the same time, there's we as sports administrators, we've got an obligation to grow the game, get kids to fall further and further in love with the game for a long period of time. Could New Zealand cricket there potentially look at two models? You know, you've got your performance field where these kids continue yeah. to go on that track and a participation field. And you choose, if you go there, you understand the risks involved. And you can always go back to this side yeah. to continue your development. Uh, not so much of a choice of one or the other. I think we should keep the one, which is just bulk standard club cricket, which is the agent stage. But yeah. what's happened in year seven and eight, it's already happened, is that there's an opportunity to play on Sundays in more of a traditional format. It's not totally traditional, don't get me wrong, but there's more opportunity there for people to play a longer format, to bat yeah. for a bit more of a time. Um, so it's, 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 it's that involvement, right? It's along the pathway. Yeah. yeah. Then, then they get to high school. Then I personally think at high school um, that that's where you should start. Then, you know, the, of course you're still developing, but that's where you need to start bringing in your know, eleven aside cricket and in more yeah. traditional formats. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. It, it's it's a pathway. We don't need to push these kids too soon. We just push so many at the game. Uh, the, mm. You know, yeah, the good yeah. ones uh -oh. play anyway, right? We just got to keep and, and the probably the rubbish ones because they're not going to enjoy it they're not any good are going to fall away anyway it's that whole big bulk in the middle right that we want to keep on because they're all the late developers because we all know kids cricket is always dominated by those that physically mature better and quicker right so we want to keep that middle group together so they have a chance of developing later we've got to keep these kids in the game that's my bullet so, <laughs> so little johnny who's outperforming everyone else in their uh, age group range is yeah. uh, what's your thoughts around maybe bumping them up one level? Yeah, I, I have no problem with that. Yeah, because like yourself, you mentioned earlier on, you're playing with adults in your younger age, that type of thing. And I think that's a good benefit for these younger kids that have actually got a bit of skill behind them to be able to jump up a level or two and be playing ahead of the other kids that are behind them. 
Yeah, I have no problem. There's obviously the social thing you've got to take into account. Obviously, you know, yeah. kids mix with kids in the same year group, right? So if you bump them up levels, they're going to be with older kids. So is that, are they going to fit in? Are they going to enjoy it from a social and fun aspect? But from a cricket perspective, if the kid can handle that, yeah. Yeah, I'd say bump them up. Yeah, totally. Mm. That's probably more... Hey, what, uh, age, what age did you take cricket seriously and go, oh, yeah, this is when I want to... I want This is me. This is what I want to pursue and pursue. I, I didn't play a game of cricket till I was 12. Yeah. Right. By 15, by 15, at 15, I scored a, a men's first 1,100. Okay. So... And in those three years, you were just fell in love with the game. Totally, I was falling in love with the game before that. It was just you couldn't play cricket before that, so there was so, no so like incredible stuff or anything like that. Yeah, right. Yeah. So at the age of twelve, you could hold a bat though, or were you learning to hold a bat at that stage as well? No, it was always messing around on the side of the field. So very informal yep. play, just yep. messing around with the mates in the nets, just just playing, but not in any structure whatsoever. Watching so family hanging around the cricket club. Yeah. Well, you're watching family, hanging around the crew club, and then when you could pretty much scull a pint, then you could take the field. <laughs> <laughs> At the age of 12. <laughs> when you could put a pint away, son, you join our team. <laughs> hey, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna drag it back from the pint, and um, um, we're, we're just gonna ask a question that goes back to a bit of an earlier discussion. Ticket prices in the UK. Uh, uh, Basically, small grounds are they affordable? Or I mean, like, because they've got quite small grounds over there, haven't they? And so they can actually part, um, charge inflate more. Well, I'll call them inflated prices, and for want of a better term. Yeah, look, demand and supply, right? It's just, um, yep. well, we're desperate for crowds in New Zealand to go to test matches. They sell out and they play top dollar. Yeah, mm -hmm. they sell out for the first three test matches of every single test match. Pretty What's the they can What's the ground sizes in the UK for cricket grounds? It's, is it the I mean, like no. I've heard 10, 15,000. Is that is that no, correct? Or is that wrong? That. So I mean, Lords is more like I'm guessing a bit here. So I'm sure someone. Put, I think it's around twenty five. Lords, yep. that sort of wow. number, yep. maybe twenty twenty five. Uh, ovals probably reasonably the same, I guess, but the others will be smaller. You're right. Yep. You get into that sort of twelve to fifteen. So, so effectively, you know, we're we're trying to sell out Eden Park. Or um, you know, in the day, back in the day, you're even your Lancaster parks and the like, where you've got thirty thousand to plus. It's just like you, you, in the UK, you've got smaller grounds, niche niche ground. So we say in Lords is thirty k, so that's at the bigger end. But you've got a niche sort of it, and you can then sell it out at a test match level as well, can't you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, are we crying out for one in Auckland? You know, a ground yeah. of about that twelve, fifteen thousand. Yeah, and then you're basically – it's an interesting dynamic, isn't it? Because at the moment, you play it at Eden Park, and during the week <clears> – <throat> on the weekend, you'll get more, but during the week, you'll get 3,000, 5,000 people turning up. All of a sudden, it's at a smaller ground, and people go, oh, I might not be able to get in, and you're getting more people yeah. turn up. It's, it's a weird Absolutely. thing that'll happen. So we'll, we'll, we'll bring it back on track, and we have got another question. So we – and it's a very valid point and, or, or topic to discuss – now we're moving from junior grades to youth grade, and it's for all sports. It's not just cricket. You see a drop-off in high school sport in general, and, and obviously in cricket as well. What can be done to, to, to keep kids in sport, and so that when they leave school, they actually carry on with clubs as well? 
Yeah, geez. I think we all know question. the answer to that one, right? <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, it's crazy. I, I think, um, look, I can't remember what the figures were now, but there has been a, a big decline in schoolboy cricket over the last sort of decade to 15 years. It's, if you look at the graph, it falls off the cliff. But um, what that graph doesn't show you is that at the same time, a lot of those kids that would have been playing in school cricket are now playing club cricket. There are now youth league options in Auckland, for example, where yep. kids that they and so what that graph showing that would probably much be a smaller drop because a lot of those kids are choosing to play at clubs. And and I think cricket, uh, I can only really speak for cricket, just hasn't adapted its offerings quick enough. You know, it's very traditional, very sort of stuck in its ways, um, and it. You know, when the sort of world is changing around shorter format cricket and that sort of stuff, schools were still offering your traditional, you know, longer format sort of stuff. Now, and it's, no, I, um, I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to say, I'm going to absolutely agree with you. And I'm going to butt in because I'm going to say, like, you know, we, we talked about last week's show when we had um, Hussein Hanif on and talking about diversity and the Pacific Island element that's around in our Auckland schools anyway. And the fact is that getting them into the game and it's just like the longer formats of the game don't appeal to them. So it's introducing the shorter formats, maybe the less, less people on the field type thing with the junior sort of thing. Just introducing that sort of different element to it that brings the smaller teams and, and eight player teams or something like that. Totally. What do you try think? it. You know, I think yeah. try it. But I think the important thing about those sorts of leagues to develop is, you know, it needs a catalyst, but then almost needs to be run by those guys themselves. You know, to have sort of administrators sitting at the top saying, oh, this is how I think you should play cricket, ain't going to get them playing cricket. Yep. They, You've got to find the leaders in there, and they'll drive their own cricket if they're right. And this is what happens in the Indian community, right? There's the passion is there. People drive their own tournaments. They drive their own competitions. Um, mm. You know, it's sometimes administrators, administrators can get in the way. You know, you know, you think you're trying to do good. But you're actually doing bad sometimes. No, it, it, what you're basically saying is the best people to make decisions about their future, their pathway, is the people themselves. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you need? Probably the facilities. Is that, so is that where club cricket, is that where you see club cricket going? More satellite teams, especially around the one-day space, you know, the participation space, where more satellite teams, more close, close shop teams approaching clubs and going, hey, we want to put a team in. We'll just pay a set fee and we'll run our thing. We'll adhere to your club policies, values, but we'll run our thing. Is that what's going to happen, you reckon? Well, well that happens now. I mean, there's 100 yeah. odd teams that play 40 over Saturday afternoon cricket in Auckland that do exactly yeah. that. Yeah, and yeah. then, and then of course, you've got your grade cricket on top. There's more T20 options now Saturdays and Sundays. But, of course, a load of people have migrated from club cricket to go and play things like the last man stands because, yeah. again, that suits what they want. They don't want to give up all their time on Saturday. They get too much in the year from the wife. And they just, um, yeah, and they just, but they can get away with two and a half hours on a Wednesday night down at the domain. So, um, and yeah. that's their cricket fix for the week. So it's yeah. around just having enough offerings out there. So you can just, you know, do a bit of a pick and mix, really, what, what it is that you want. But for that to happen, you need it coordinated. You need the facilities, you yeah. know, and, uh, yeah. But, you know, I, I still believe cricket is really healthy at the moment in, in Auckland, really healthy. You know, could could always do better, but oh, it's pretty you, good. You always want – I mean, yeah, that's the thing is that you always need to strive to do better because if you're not, you're standing still. If you're standing still, you're going backwards. 
I, I went, you mentioned earlier I went to South Africa for this World Cup in Cape Town. Yeah. Yep. So we, went, we played around Cape Town. We only got to play, played two and a half games, believe it or not. And um, But talking to the other teams that played, the standard of pitches in Auckland, much better than Cape Town. Tell you now, much better. Really, you know, it really surprised me. I was expecting to go to Cape Town and just be absolutely amazed by their facilities. And they have got amazing facilities, but the pitches, I take Auckland any day. Oh, yeah. It was a bit of, yep, yeah. sorry, Taryn, where you go? You played Cornwall AD, that's why. No, Cornwall, you're like. Last year I played a place like Devonport Domain, was amazing. Yeah, Capitoli, what a pitch that is. Wouldn't mind. That was yeah. right. Number one? That's on the number usually. one? Amazing pitch. Um, yeah. You know, Takapuna. One of a great pitch at Takapuna. Yeah. You know, so and there's a lot of great club pitches around at the moment. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Nah, I do agree. That's why they need to go back to the regulation, save themselves $70 a ball, you know. Don't don't use the turfs. It's a graveyard for bowlers. Just go back to the regs. Well, mate, you want anything to, that makes bowlers you work you might have to expand on what regs are. Oh, regulation balls. They're uh, tear right. down from the turf cricket balls. They are $70 cheaper than a turf cricket ball. Club cricket uses that because it is a pathway to uh, Premier Cricket, uh, first-class cricket. But with pitches getting better and better, especially last year when it was a dry summer, the wickets were wicked, which made it tougher for the bowlers. But that's how you separate the men from the boys, so the high-performance element comes into it. So, yeah, it's perfect. Yeah, it was really good. Absolutely. Well, I, just, I might just sort of see, have you got any more questions there for Adrian yeah. and there, uh, Taryn? I've got one. Yes. Yep, where you go, mate. Before you get away, I've got a little quiz for you. And this is more based around the players I remember from the 90s that I think you may have played with or coaches you've played around. And you've got to pick one and can give you a quick snapshot as why that person, why you've chosen that person. I'll try and go in an order. Right, Duncan Fletcher or Keith Fletcher? Coaching. Duncan Fletcher had the right. magic touch. Just everything he touched. Um, he started in club cricket in um, Cape Town. He took an unfashionable team. They won the grade. Went to Western Province. They were nothing. They won. Came to Glamorgan. We were nothing. They won. And then did amazing things at international. He's got the man so, management skills plus the uh, plus the technical skills. He's a, a man great, management skills. Totally, he's a great. Yeah, don't his TV persona. Is his TV persona? He's not that person with the voice. So oh, yeah. He's a great guy. Okay, Salisbury or Schofield? Salisbury, I would say. Yeah, Salisbury. I always thought when I faced them both was the was the more complete bowler. Oh, yeah. for Rohit and Ashwin, they're the two leg spinners that played for England. Yeah. All right. <laughs> um, <laughs> Ronnie Irani or Adam Holyoke? Oh, jeez. Um, I'd say, look, uh, Adam Holyoke for me. Yep. I think, again, just a bit more combative and, uh, yeah, just offered that a little bit more. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, Rambakash. Rambakash, you were saying, I'd say I'd take Rambakash in county cricket and Hussein in international cricket. What difference being? Well, Rambakash was just an absolute beast at county level. But when he went up to that international level, he wasn't quite the same player. He just—he was sort of like a bit like a Graham Hick, you know. He absolute masters of first-class cricket, but good, goodish international players, but not stars. But Hussein at his best was a star international player. So that's what I. Think. 
Yeah. Fair enough. The reason I asked about um, Hussein and Rampakash was I was reading a Keith Fletcher article this morning. Right. <laughs> yeah, and he talked about the two of them, and he pretty much said Rampakash, and he said he regretted having, um, well, he re looking back, he regrets playing Rampakash in the Caribbean, and Hussein probably would have played those three test matches in 92 or when he coached, or 95 or something. And he said, look, Hussein would have done the job. He just had that steely reserve to succeed, which yeah. ramp some, not that he didn't, but this yeah. is, I'm reading from the article. He said he felt there's something missing looking back. Yeah. Um, so we've got Neil Fail, brother, and Roger Toos. Is that a decent comparator? Look, I think that, um, you know, when I was playing county cricket, I definitely would have had Fair Brother as the better cricketer. But, yeah. I mean, then obviously Toos made the, made the swap, didn't he? Came and played New Zealand. Mm. It yeah. was fantastic. So it just yeah. shows when a guy gets an opportunity, how they can sort of rise to the sort of occasion. And, yeah, I mean, hats off to them both, both super players, yeah. Yeah, for your brother then, okay. Um, Tafnell or Giles? Sorry, sorry before you, before you jump in, can, can I, so going back to that last one, is there an element of different styles of wicket that made it easier or made the men that choose suited New Zealand cricket more than English cricket, maybe? No, I'd say the sort of wickets between New Zealand and England are actually reasonably similar. I just think it was opportunity. Okay. And he was just one of those players that just didn't get an opportunity in the UK. And when it came to New Zealand, he just was ready for it. Cool. Yeah. All right. Um, Tafnell Giles. Tafnell by a mile. Really? <laughs> by a mile. Has he got ashes? Did he? Has he got an ashes to show for? Oh, mate, oh. you didn't ask me what they got in their uh, in their cupboard. <laughs> How are they good at their bowling? <laughs> mate, why? Why, Ad? Was what well, Tafnell had the ability to he turned the ball more. And he had yeah. that ability to get it up above your eye line and sort of get that dip on you and and it to go. With with yeah. Giles, just he's a he, he could he basically darted it accurately, mm, yeah. Um, yeah. and but that was his style. But he didn't have this. He didn't have the skill set Tuffnell had. And yeah, Tuffnell was a lad yeah. as well. Eh? He he seemed as if he was an absolute lad. He, um, a guy called Alan Butcher played for Glamorgan. He was my yep. one of my captains, and he was with Tufnell at a previous county. And uh, they were all sort of training, and uh, Tufnell sitting on the side having a fag. And he said, and he said, Tufnell, are you joining us for training? He said, I can turn it on glass, mate. That's all he said. <laughs> 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 you know what that reminded me of? Yeah. Bruce Martin. It reminded me of Bruce Martin. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, let's listen to him and um, uh, and Vaughan on some of their cricket shows afterwards, uh, and you, you realise that part of that was a front, I think, and that actually, especially international level, he perhaps wasn't given the confidence by his captains there to show how good he was um, as an international cricketer. He wasn't necessarily given the fields he needed or wanted or the, or the confidence to sometimes, I think. Whereas you say Giles kept it close and kept it always kept it tight which was a big which is why one of them made it international the other one was yeah didn't didn't, didn't perform good enough yeah he provided control um giles in teams where had good team attacks and that yeah. that was his role remember he came over the wicket a lot that was a duncan fletcher tactic yeah. you know yeah. he got him to do that um it was a it was a control 
um, tactic to rest up, just let the seamers rest and come back. Yeah. Um, Devin Malcolm and Caddick. I personally would say that I think Caddick would pit Malcolm as a bowler in, in my yeah. eyes. I think he scary? just... Um, Who was scarier? Um, oh, they're both pretty scary. Because <laughs> they're yeah. both... Yeah, yeah, they could both they could both hit you hard. Um, Malcolm, at times, he could bowl those devastating spells like he did against South Africa at the Oval. Mm, but yeah. he 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 was also prone to sort of spraying it a bit. Where Caddick never really sprayed it that much, you know. Yeah. Um, so he was just a bit more at you. But yeah. you say about Viv Richards, mate. Sorry if I just digress. Him in the second season with us, he was having a bit of a bad run, and he was having these sort of. Um, it was these sort of standard English county seamers that were getting him out. And then we went to play Derby at Chesterfield on a fast wicket, and their opening attack was Devon Markham and Ian Bishop. And all us other sort of county players who have been doing all right against these other sort of county medium paces, um, <laughs> suddenly we saw it. Viv just capped it, went out against Bishop and Markham and just <laughs> whacked them to all parts of the ground. It was just like, yep. That's the master blaster right there, you know, and that's international cricket, and you just yeah, so just just amazing. Oh, um, was that was Bishop playing at the time for the West Indies? Um, yeah, I, I guess, must have, right? yeah, must have, yeah. yeah, yeah, okay. Um, Robin Smith or Graham Hack, international, we're talking international, I'd say international, say Robin Smith. Yeah. yeah, just again a guy that just seemed to rise to that sort of pressure pot environment of the international scene. Where Hick was just a little bit more, bit more of a bully at county cricket, but was yeah. just maybe yeah. You know, he still has moments in international cricket and a super player, an amazing player. But I would say, and and I think his uh, back foot game, Robin Smith's back foot game, really suited the um, his time as an international player as well against those great West Indians fast attacks. Yeah. Um, Embury or Croft? Oh. Your mate Croft. Yeah, definitely Embry. No. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah, look, uh, look, Embry was probably, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's, um, I'll call that one a tie. I'll call that one a tie. Is that right? So is Croft up there? I know Croft played a lot for England, but is he up there at the Embry level? I never, I, Embry was a name for me. And I watched yeah. a lot of crop. So you're saying that's pretty that's that to me that winning, yeah. yeah, to get to a tie, I thought he's winning. Um Ben Holyoke had a very short um time through his um, for yeah. whatever happened there. Could he have become a Ben Stokes? Could he well were, were they both similar? I think so. I think he could have, yeah. Because he just had that um he didn't only just have the ability, but he had the um the right personality to compete at international cricket. He was confident enough and cocky enough and brave enough, you know, to sort of play the way that sort of Ben Stokes could play. So he was young and yeah, and how tragic, but he could have. I think he he could have. Yeah. And last one, I couldn't find a comparator, so you'll have to just shed some light on this. Chris Lewis and his talent. Yeah, just um, just a super like um, athletic guy, you know, just just loose and languid, and but strong as well, you know. And he, he was an amazing ball. He used to run up, and his arm came over like a medium pacer, and the ball hit your bat like a super fast bowler, and you couldn't understand where the speed came from. So 
Um, yeah, he was. Uh, As you're talking, I'm taking it to modern day. I'm thinking, is that the new Joffrey Archer? Is that a Joffrey Archer of the old? You know, Archer yeah, looks but like. Archer's quicker, though. Yeah, yeah but Archer's you know, like, Joffrey Archer doesn't look like he's bowling 95 miles. That's right, yeah. It is sort mm-hmm. of like that, but Joffrey is another level again. So who did Chris Chris Lewis compete against to get his stripes at that time? Who was his big competitor? I'm not quite sure, mate. So that was... So if you're talking about those, you're looking at what the England bowling attack was, Harmison, Hoggard, um, you had um, Chris White, Carl Lewis. No, Lewis as well. Lewis is before. Before that. Yeah, before that. Yeah. I I those three in, um, uh, in the West Indies on a tour. Towards, towards the end of his career. Anyway, I thought he was part of that kind of crowd. Uh, early doors. But now, that's all I had, AD. Great, mate. Should we, should we ask Aaron's question uh, that he's po- po- popped up for Auckland cricket? You, you, your best spinner's an Auckland off spinner and leg spinner. That's uh, <laughs> currently there, I suppose. I'm not sure whether he's talking about currently there or whether he's talking about historically speaking. Well, not a bad leg spinner amongst us here, right? So there's yeah, a, right. He's not a bad one. <laughs> I think that's what Aaron wanted to hear. Back of the head before it was even a thing. I was still your back of the head slow ball coming out. Yeah. Uh, look, I, I'm not sure, mate, about the sort of scene. I mean, the, the spinners, I guess, are those ones that you see competing, you know, for the aces. I mean, they, they guys. Um, yeah, I, w- I wouldn't know too much beyond that. I, I'm not really sort of a key with those sort of premier players pushing for those sort of spinner spots at the first-class level. So not entirely sure, mate, to be honest. No, that's cool. Hey, look, um, thank you for coming on the show tonight. Really appreciate it. Hopefully you've enjoyed your time on here okay. and um, you've enjoyed it enough that you'll, if we invite you back, you'll come back again as well. Yeah, totally. It's been great fun, guys. And I've enjoyed listening to you uh, last few weeks as well. It's been good fun. Thank you. No, I appreciate awesome. that. Thank you for your comments. Thanks, and, yeah, cheers. Appreciate it. Uh, Rohit Taran, thanks for uh, being on the show again tonight. And to everybody that's out there, thank you for watching. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can get this as a podcast on um, iHeartRadio um, and other iPod services. So you can download them to your fantastic devices and then have a listen to them when you're going for your jogs and your run. When you're watching this, please, 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 I know we're getting a lot of feedback um, that people are liking what we're doing, liking the show. We really need you to help us now, and that's to share. Share and share and share. Share as much as you can, and that can get us out there and get our numbers up as well and help us out. So thank you guys once again, and this has been Swinging from the Hip, your place for all your cricket talk and cricket news. And we'll see you again next Thursday at 8 p.m. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.